0: All right. We want to talk about approaching God as God today, and um, some realities of knowing and living God's truth. So this first part is a review of what we talked about in the last couple of weeks. What does it mean to know and live God's truth? We so last week we we talked about this that in 2024 we're going to really zero in on what is it? What are the essential beliefs uh, that? that Christians need to have as anchors. Um, and I told you about Pat Sawyer who, who said there needs to be good theology in the pew as well as in the pulpit. There's got to be a knowledge of God. That's what theology is, an understanding of God in order for us to be the people of God and to prevent us from being deceived by the enemy and veering off course, which is what we're seeing so much in American Christianity. And last, so, last week, turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter two. Anybody need a Bible? We got some in the back. The ushers will deliver them to you if you need them. Anybody? Okay. Second Timothy chapter two. We need to develop these essential skills. Uh, I guess they're skills or abilities or characteristics, um, so that we can be anchored, know what we believe, live what we believe and not be deceived, not be taken off course. 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 15, says, Do your best, do your best, give every effort, put full effort, primary effort, top of your priorities, to present yourself to God as one approved. Why? Because this life is short, and as we've seen in the, in the um, treasure principle, this life is just a dot, eternity is the line. So it. And in our memory verse, it's about living for what lasts. To present yourself to God is one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. The things that you're doing, pleasing to God, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. So not just pastors, but every Christ follower, understanding what the Bible says and how to live it out. But avoid irreverent babble. In other words, don't get caught up into stuff that doesn't matter. There's a lot of conversation and arguments about um, nuances, of, you know, t- taking words from the Bible apart that might be nice to know, but it's not essential, and it can get you off track. So, you know, and especially the irreverent Bible that just going through the motions. He says, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Focus on the things that matter. And so Pat Sawyer says, here are the things that we need to work on. That's what we're going to do in 2024. Biblical literacy. Having God's truth deep within us. And so Sunday mornings, learning communities, our devotional book are all designed for that. Having a biblical worldview. Having a lens that sees the Bible through um, God's eyes as we know the Bible so that we're interpreting, we're understanding, um, and we're able to spot error. And then number three is biblical application. As we see what happens around us in our culture, we're able to apply what the Word of God says to live for His truth. As I was praying this week, I, uh, I sensed, um, as I was on my knees, God reminding me that is it's easier to believe untruths mm-hmm. than truth. Amen. It's easier to live untruths than mm-hmm. truth. Because we live in an upside down world. And we have a sinful nature. And so we have to deliberately work at this. That's number one. We need to develop essential skills. Another reality is that God, it, it's always been hard for the people of God to follow and to hold strong to the truth. So Matthew is going to come and talk about how God has guided his people. Especially in the early days after Christ. to So that we have what we have is the real word of God. Matthew? Which ma- mic do you want him to use?
1: All right. So this is sort of the kickoff week for our 2024 sermon theme. And to start the year off, we're going to be be talking about the essentials of the faith. And as the teaching team was meeting and discussing how we want to go through the essentials of the faith, one of the ideas that really stuck out to me was the people who first wrote these things down. And I'm not talking about Jesus and the apostles because Jesus and the apostles had a worldview tempered by the coming of the Messiah. Those people who knew Jesus, and and I'm going to count Paul in that with his encounter on the road. Those people who knew Jesus, they had, especially after Pentecost, such a clear perspective of the spiritual realm that the people just one or two generations after them and then the people like us 2,000 years later we lack without really close relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so those first couple generations, I really wanted to focus in on them. So I have a couple dates here to kind of emphasize the scale of something I think we don't think about very often. You can go ahead and put them all up. Um, so the death and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, happens around the year 30. Then about 34 years later, we have the death of Paul, the apostle. And then less than a decade after that, um, the Ro- there's a Jewish rebellion, and the Roman army comes to Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And I don't think that we have the words in our culture, let alone in their culture, to describe what a huge religious deal that was. All the religions around that region, in both the Middle East and in Europe, were what we might call temple religions, where your temple was the home of your god and so without a temple it, it would have been so hard for them to even think well how do you worship god without a temple and so for for both the jews and the romans the destruction of the, the the destruction of the temple in jerusalem was the end of judaism as they knew it 30 years after that john the last living apostle dies so at this point there is no one left alive who was directly taught by jesus 213 years pass before Emperor Constantine legalizes Christianity in Rome. And so for those 213 years, Christians across the Roman Empire would have been persecuted not just as heretics against their own religion, um, but they would have been persecuted as heretics against Judaism because Rome accepted other religions as long as you had what they called a basis in ancient tradition. And so not only did they see Christians as Um, disrespecting their gods but they saw Christians as disrespecting their own gods because they're like, you can't worship a guy who died 30 years ago. (laughs) It's 213 years before Christianity is legalized. And I have a couple other dates in here from that era. In 324 um, the story goes that Emperor Constantine destroyed a temple to Venus that was built on um, Golgotha Hill and he said that this is such an important place to the Christians that the pagans have no claim to it. A couple years after that, the First Council of Nicaea um, declares the tenets of the faith at illegally, which was a big deal. This was one of the first councils after the legalization of Christianity. And they took many steps to canonizing what we today call the New Testament. And then in the year 380, Christianity became the official religion of the entire empire. But I want to focus on that 213 years in between, when Christianity was illegal and the apostles were gone, and what, what Christianity must have been like for them. Because in every one of those years, Christianity was growing, and yet it, it spread across all of Europe, spread across the Middle East, spread into Northern Africa. And I want you to imagine anything like that spreading without the Holy Spirit. What would have happened? How? a church like that would have been led, how a church like that would even function when your leaders are constantly being arrested, when there was no canonized New Testament, where even though they had all of the writings that we today would consider the New Testament, the writings of Paul, the writings of the uh, um, apostles and the Gospels, no one had compiled them. And this was a thousand years before the printing press, so even if they did want those writings, even if they did want, hey, does anyone have the letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians? Someone had to go and copy that. Someone had to go find a co- find an original copy. Sit down with a pen and ink and write down the whole thing. And so, a church might only have one or two of these writings. Might not have a copy of the gospel. Might not have a copy of any of Paul's writings, um, or John's writings. And I and I, I'm just just thinking about this. Just thinking about it on a, on a strictly intuitive level. It's like how can you how can you find faith in that time? How can We, as Christians today, we take so much for granted, not just in our Bibles being the best-selling book in the world, but all the commentaries we have access to, all the sermons we have access to at our fingertips. They had none of that. And so now I want to show you a quote from a man named Irenaeus of Smyrna. He lived around 130, he was born around 130, and so he would have been born 30 years after the last apostle died. So he would have been trained by people who were trained by the apostles. So he was two generations removed from the people who knew Jesus. And this is what he said about the church during his lifetime. The church, though dispersed through the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles, their disciples, this faith, as I have already observed the church having received this preaching and this faith. Oh, I'm sorry, I went backwards. Yet as it, oh, oh I'm right. Received the end this faith, although scattered through the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central regions of the world. But as the sun, that creature of God, is one and the same throughout the whole world. And also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come come to a knowledge of the truth. So everything I just said was true. They didn't have a New Testament. Most churches wouldn't have had any of the writings that we would consider canonical New Testament writings. None of the people alive had any personal relationship with, with Jesus on, as, a, as a physical person. Um, very, very few people alive had a, had a physical relationship with Jesus' disciples. And yet, this quote from Arminius of Smyrna shows unexplained optimism. Where he travels the world, he meets with all these churches, and he finds a unified religion, one that has no New Testament, one that, has no, uh, one that has no global leaders, one that is persecuted and technically illegal in many parts of the empire. It depends on the decade how illegal it was. Some, empire, some emperors were more neutral, some emperors were more, um, were more persecutory. But, um, and, yet, and yet the religion thrived, and Irenaeus talks about how, how unified the church was. We have an image of a, church, of a church council in Acts 15. I'm not going to read the whole chapter here. Many of you may know the story. It's the story of Peter and Paul going to Jerusalem to talk about the issues of the Judaizers, to, to talk about how, how the church will grow and how they will deal with this theological disagreement in the church. And that is an image of how the church goes on to, goes on to handle itself well past the 3rd well century where church leaders from all around the world would gather in one place and they would discuss these theological issues and they would establish what Christians believed. And one of the things established during this period in these first 200 years of, of the post-apostle church is what we, what we today call the Apostles' Creed. And this is something that we're going to be emphasizing in the coming weeks for what, it, what are the basics and essentials of our faith. And so I ask you to read this with me. And as you read it, I want you to think about those people who wrote this, how despite having the entire world against them, despite not having anything that we take for granted, they put this into words and they, through the Holy Spirit, found the essentials in a way that very few people could have done with more resources than they had. And I I just find that so, so beautiful and such such an image of the grace of God. So please read the Apostles' Creed with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the spirits of hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, once he shall come and judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The people who wrote that didn't have a New Testament. They had all the writings, but many of them wouldn't have had a copy. The people who wrote that only had the church and they only had the holy spirit and that is what he gave that that is what he gave that church this this apostles creed to me is a sign of the triumph even before the legalization legalization of christianity this is this is the image of that early church this is a snapshot in time of their faith against all odds
0: Thank you, Matthew. That gives us a good launching into where we're headed. Um, And, yeah, it it caused me to pause and think about the integrity, um, the commitment of these people. And one of the things, as Matthew and I were talking this week, in Acts 15, in that council, which was a model for the, the Council of Nicaea and some of the others, um, in Acts 15, it says, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And that's the key. That's why they could do this. Because Ire- Irenaeus and um, the people who had trained him were under persecution. They, almost all of them were either thrown into prison or martyred in, uh, at the, towards the end of their lives after they had served the church so well. Because this happens in the context of an enemy... Satan himself was trying to steal, kill, and destroy the church in every generation. Um, I think one of the other things that we talked about was it's always hard to be a Christian. It always has been. Sometimes we romanticize those early days. Oh man, if we could have been there when Paul was speaking. It's always been hard because it's in the context of that spiritual warfare. But God always protects his word and he provides it for us. And it's interesting because um, in the 1940s, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And since then, they continue to find more and they continue to excavate them. And what you find is um, scrolls that had been written in, um, in the, the first century now found... And, and then century after century with the Gutenberg Press it gets popular, different translations, and, and then they find these fragments in clay pots that God somehow preserved and allowed to be found in the 1940s and it is so accurate to what we have now. What kind of a book stands the test of time? Over 2,000 years, only the truth of God led by the Holy Spirit, provided um, the Holy Spirit filling those people so it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. The truth of God used by, by the Spirit of God so that we can have anchored in our faith. So God has actively been providing His truth. The teaching team's original plan was then, I was going to talk about the first statement. I believe in God the Father... Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. As is so often the case, the Holy Spirit had a different idea. Um, so we'll do that next week. Okay. As the Holy Spirit, as, the, as long as the, God willing, we'll do it next week. Um, and what I sensed we needed to do and pause before we start looking into those essentials is how we approach, our attitude in approaching God and the Bible. Mm-hmm. There have been people who memorized vast portions of this book mm-hmm. who, are, who are some of the most evil people that have ever lived. Mm-hmm. So it's not the book itself. It's how we allow God to use the Word of God. In the by the Spirit of God in us, and that requires an attitude of humility, a humility that is um, deeper than we often think of humility. So God has been um, highlighting this for me for the last few weeks of how important humility is that we don't even realize. Um, you know, I've met people who say who have told me, you know, I'm so humble, I'm proud of my humility. (laughs) You've met them, haven't you? Proverbs chapter 26 verse 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. When we have an attitude that we know and we are convinced that we know then the word of God can't help us. There's got to be a humility, a, submi- a sub- submissiveness to God, His Word, His Spirit in order for us to experience the life and even understand the truth. So those people who have memorized vast portions of this aren't living it. They, and, and they don't even grasp the truth of it. Because you can't really understand what Jesus says underneath. The, the real reality of it, um, without the Holy Spirit giving you there, there are so many ways this book is misquoted in our culture and, and, and portraying it as saying something that it doesn't even say. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4 and we see how important this humility is. Humility um, is, r- so C.S. Lewis, I told the kids and the kids looked at me cross-eyed. Is humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. It's not putting ourselves down. It's not degrading ourselves. It's not um, you know, for you know, you know, if Candace sings a solo and, and um, you say, Oh, I really appreciate that. I, you know, you have such a nice voice, and she says, No, I don't. That's not humility. That's lying, (laughs) right? But how oftentimes do we think of that? You know, somebody. Oh, you're so good at that, and you know you're good at it. They know you're good at it, but you feel obligated to say, "No, I'm not really. You know, anybody could do it." That's not humility. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking honestly of ourselves. It's 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 looking at reality, living in the truth, but not. Um, not putting myself on a pedestal. Myself on a pedestal. It's, not, um, it's believing that God's given me whatever gift I have, whatever ability that I have, and honoring Him for it. Um, pride on the other side. You know, the uh, synonym for pride means to be, to be high, to put yourself above. Pride is putting myself above God and above other people. And so this humility is huge. James chapter 4 verses 6-10 to But God gives us more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let that sink in for a moment. Humility is so important that the opposite, because the opposite of it, pride you make yourself an enemy of God. He opposes the proud. Not, he, not just the pride that that person is exhibiting. He's talking about the person. God opposes, opposes that proud person. We be, make ourselves an enemy. So anytime we put ourselves above other people, anytime we don't humble ourselves to God, we're making ourselves an enemy. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Give Him all authority. Give Him all permission. Give Him all um, a willingness to allow him to do whatever he wants. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Pride is one of those things we need to resist. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's humility. Submitting ourselves to God. Pulling our, allowing him to draw us near. Cleanse your hands. In other words, get rid of all the stuff that is sinful. You sinners, purify your hearts. Get rid of all the stuff that's in your heart that is sinful. Repent. You double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's our attitude towards sin. Um, one of the lies of our culture is this um, kind of flippancy towards sin. Yeah, I, God want me to do that, and I didn't do it, and I probably should have done it. No, that's not repenting. That's just admitting that you got caught. Right? He's saying when we, um, when we disobey God, when we go against God, when we don't follow His way, we need to be broken by it. We need to be sorrowful for it and turn and repent. Go the opposite direction. Go His way. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. In our culture, sin is mostly laughed at. Rather than seen as ugly and bad. And your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Put yourself at His feet. And He, and, and he will exalt you. In His time, He will lift you up. He will pull you up. Humility is huge. Humility, it, and it's more nuanced than, um, than we usually recognize. So humility, here's a picture of humility. If you're playing on a sports team, and the coach is the authority and the coach is in charge. And the coach, because of his position, has every right and responsibility to call the plays, to pick the team, to choose who to put on the floor. If you're talking about basketball, who to put on the floor, at what time, in what position, who, what plays you're going to run, how long the players are going to be in the game, when they're going to sit on the bench, and, how, you know, how it, and t- calling the timeouts. He, he has authority of all of that. Humility is recognizing that, and when the coach says, okay, Herb, you need to sit on the bench for the first half, is to say, okay, coach. That's humility. Because he's the, the authority. And if he calls down the bench and he says, Herb, I want you to go in for... I want you to, they, they brought in a tall guy. I want you to come in. I want you to guard him. Stay on him. Everybody else will be playing zone. You play man to man. You stay on him. Don't. You be his shadow. And, I, and humility is saying, okay coach. Pride is saying, you know coach, I've been watching the game and I think what you ought to do. <laughs> now we don't do that with God, do we? See, see how nuanced it is? Because anytime we think God ought to do something different, and we start telling Him how to run His universe, we're not having humility. Humility means I'm the servant, He's the master. I'm the player, He's the coach. I'm the child, He's the parent. And whatever He says goes. Now, I can talk with Him, I can ask Him questions, and But having the humility to say, you're God, and I'm not trying to take your authority, I'm not being disrespectful. I am following you. Humility is absolutely essential. And my experience and my observation is there are ongoing places of pride that I don't realize. Where God says, you need to humble yourself here. I want you to forgive that person. As I read the Bible and the Holy Spirit convicts me, I'm going, I already did. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you didn't. Well, I said I did. I know you said you did, but you didn't. Now, I want you to go over that person and talk to them and, and I want you to admit that you were wrong. And, no, I don't want to do that. There we go. That is pride. We don't, we don't usually think of it as pride, do we? Pride. Alistair Begg, um, I was listening to a, a message that he was giving on humility, and he said, Scripture is always trying to get us to the end of ourselves so that we will depend upon God in humility. And so as we go th- into the essentials of, of being a Christian, that's the attitude. is We're looking for Scripture that will bring us to the end of ourselves, which is pride, so that we will humble ourselves before God and allow Him to do what He wants to do. God is always trying to get us to be dependent upon Him. Because that's what we were created for. That's the place, to, that's where we need to be in order to experience the life that He's promised us to live. We ha- and so I put a bullet point in there. We have more pride than we realize. <clears throat> As we, so as we go forward in this, this year, we're looking at this <clears throat> <clears throat> it will be important for us to listen to Scripture, listen to the Holy Spirit, but also hold one another accountable. Mm-hmm. Because we have blind spots in places where and we're proud mm-hmm. and we don't realize it and we need somebody else to come alongside of us that loves us enough to say, I think you need to humble yourself there. scarier. All right, so let's turn to Job. In the book of Job, we're going to be looking specifically beginning in chapter 38. So in the book of Job, we have a person who God says is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. That's the first couple of chapters of Job. The most righteous man on the face of the earth. I can find no fault in him. That's what God says about Job. That's who he is. And so they're in this divine council, um, God gives permission for a demonic entity to take Job out. And, and so he loses everything he's got. His, his kids, he loses his health, he's on an ash heap, just scraping himself. His wife says, just curse God and die. He's by himself. He, he's experienced everything. He goes, no, God gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and then three friends come to him. Who, and, and they come and I think it's for about a week or so. They just come and they just sit. They do what they should do. They just come and they just sit. And, and they comfort him. And they're just there with him. Wonderful. Humility. I mean, just to sit. then they open their mouths. (laughs) And it all comes apart. So from like chapter 3 to chapter 37, 35 or 4, somewhere in there, these three friends take turns telling Job, you must have sinned, and now you're experiencing the punishment of God. You need to repent of that sin, confess it, and then God will maybe restore you. And Job's response is, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. I've, I've looked at everything, and, and, and he um, defends himself. He goes, and, um, and then about chapter 34, 35, there's a fourth younger guy who comes along and actually shows some wisdom because he focuses on God, on who God is. And, and he, he says, I'm not sure what's going on, Job. But, um, and then after all of that, God shows up. Now remember, Job was the most righteous person on the face of the earth. Pleasing to God. After all of these things, God shows up. And I want you to follow along. I'm not going to read everything in these four chapters. But I want to highlight some things that God says to Job, the most righteous man on the face of the earth. Because after all of this, it, and it's like the, um, the five of them are sitting there and they look off in a distance and they see this whirlwind. They see this dust storm coming in and it's God showing up. Chapter 38, Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, if you're Job, and that's the first words out of God's mouth of invisible form, it's as bad as the day has been, <laughs> it's going to get worse. Because now you have the God of the universe who takes you to task, who begins to zero in. Now notice, the most righteous man on the face of the earth, God, you know, up Had pride that he hadn't seen, and because of that pride, God had to show him some things. He had to go. He went through all of this, and God had to show him. Who is it that darkens? And I, I get a kick out of this because this is the woodshed of all woodsheds. Right? You've heard of the you know God taking me to the woodshed. This is where you don't want to be. Dress dress for action like a man. Hey, you know, pull on your big boy pants and I will question you and you make it known to me. Right there, I don't know if how but right then I would have gone to okay, whatever you say. This this is good. I don't need to hear anything else. And he was not letting him off the hook. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Not only is he taking the witchhed, but he's sarcastic about it. This is God. Who determines its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its basis uh, what, or on, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness for its, its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars? What he's going back to is the story of Genesis. He's saying where were you when I created all this? Which means I actually did get a little bit of the first statement in, right? God creator of the earth. So I did a little bit. <laughs> And so he's taking him back. Where were you, Job? Because you've been proclaiming that you're righteous and you're good and you you have said you don't know yet, and you you've been accusing me of not being faithful to you in his words to the his friends. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Verse 21, you know for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Did you realize how sarcastic God can be? (laughs) Surely, Job, you know. You were there, right? You were, you were, you. Were, yeah. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hail? And he goes through, um, you know, thing after thing about creation. Jump over to verse thirty-one. Can you bind the chain of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Now he's going to the sky, to the stars. So he's talked about, you, you. know, do you know anything about what, ha- what has happened on earth? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a, f- that a flood of waters may cover you? And on and on he goes. Verse uh, Chapter 39, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? He's talking about all the stuff that he does. And Job, you don't know anything about it. Um, Verse 9, chapter 39. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? (laughs) The inference is, he serves me. Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes or in the harrow in the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his great strength and you will leave him in your labor and on and on he goes. Verse 19. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Too much shoveling snow. Verse 19. Do you give the horse his mate? Do you clothe his neck with his mane? Do you make him leap like a, a locust? Um, verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command the eagle mounts up and he goes on? Chapter 40, and the Lord said to Job, shall fault finder contend with the Almighty? He's saying, Job, all that you said sounded good, but you were inferring that I was doing wrong. You hear it? chapter 40 verse 3 Job answered the Lord and said behold I am of small account what shall I answer you I lay my hand on my mouth I'm done talking I've spoken once and I will not answer twice but I will proceed no further he has been humbled about things he didn't know he was proud. But he was. Do you suppose if Job had some areas where he was still proud that he that he didn't know about that you and I might? Do you suppose God will take that same kind of effort to work in our lives, our circumstances, our relationships, our minds, our hearts, our souls to try to hone us so that we're more like him in humility? At that point, you think, okay, Job got the point. God's not done. Verse 6. <laughs> and, you know, you, know you, see, you see these commercials sometimes when somebody's talking and the hair blows back, you know, and they're blown against the wall. Uh, that's what I think Job was like. And I got this hunch that the four friends were kind of slowly making their way away. <laughs> but the, but and I think God goes, ah, back, sit. Because he wasn't done with them either. So look at what God says next. Dress for action like a man. <laughs> Pull on your big boy pants. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? That was the point. He, by his inference in all of those chapters, was saying, God, you're doing something wrong. And every time we complain, every time we try to, we're doing the same thing. It's like me coming off the bench, telling the coach, put me in, coach, it's my turn to play. That's not humility, that's pride. That's saying, I know better than you do, coach. By the way, that never goes well. Not, I may have tried that. (laughs) Never goes well. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? See, that's part of it. We want to look good. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them. And he goes, he says, that's my job. And you've been talking about it. And then in verse 15, he talks about behemoth, which was one of the huge animals that had been created. And he goes through this long diatribe. Chapter 41, can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook? That was a, a water animal that was beyond powerful. And he, he takes them to task about that. Um, and then chapter 42. After all of that, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He has gotten a glimpse of God that he never had before. You and I need that glimpse. Amen. But it comes at a price. We have to humble ourselves And give him all authority. Give him the God share. Who is this that hides counsel? And he repeats God's question. God, you said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then God, you said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And here's, here is the verse for me in this whole book. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but my eye, now my eyes uh, my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I had known about you, but now I've come face to face. And I realize who you are and who I am. So what's the point of all that? <clears throat> God must be our all in all point of reference. Amen. God, and that was Job's, part of Job's issue is um, he started with himself instead of with God. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that as we go forward. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs fifteen thirty-three, is... The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. And humility comes before honor. The fear of the Lord giving him his proper place. Unbelief assumes that I know what should be done. And it starts from me instead of starting from God. And so as we go to the Word of God, we, um, there's a temptation to look at it um, and as we've been going through our devotional, and God's talking, and it's talking about putting all these animals in the ark of every kind, pride is a, the starting point that says, "There's no way God could do that." But when we start with God as the point of reference, the question changes, or the statement changes: "Is I wonder how God did that?" You see the difference? And and so as we approach these essentials, we need to come with this attitude. I wonder how God did that. God, how did you do that? And and impossibility never enters our mind when we're humble. Because God can do anything He wants. God's God. And that's what Job found out. And if you don't want to go to the woodshed, (laughs) accept it and, and, and allow Him to work in as gentle ways as possible. And total submission must be our attitude. Proverbs 16:8. 8, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride leads to destruction. And so total submission, us as players, servants, children, and allowing God to have the God chair. Pride is wanting more than the Bible provides. Hear me on this. <clears throat> so as we go into this next week, this Bible is not an exhaustive st- history of all, that God has, of all that has been done. That's not the purpose of the book. <clears throat> Nor is it a scientific explanation of everything that has happened. That's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of this book is to give us an understanding of who God is and what God does and what, how we need to respond. How we can we can experience Him. It's not going to tell us everything we want to know. Ever. That's not the design. But it everything it says is true. And God has done it. So I don't know how He got all those animals on the ark. If you go to the ark encounter in Kentucky, it, it gives you a lot of good Stuff. I don't know how he did it all. I don't know how, he, I don't know how he, he's done what he's done in my life. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Humility says, God's in control. I'm not. God's in charge. I'm not. The mistake of Job's friends is that they thought they were good with God. And they weren't. Now I'm going to meddle. It's possible for us to think we're good with God on all counts and not be. That's why we have to humble ourselves and say, God, do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, and, and have your way. How much different would it have been had Job's friends come, sat with him for a week, and then said, how about if we spend some time worshiping And praising and praying and surrendering and asking God what in the world he's up to. How about if we just align ourselves with him and, and wait for him to show up? Maybe, just maybe, it wouldn't have been a woodshed. Maybe it would have been an encounter that accomplished what God wanted. That's what I'm challenging you to do this year. Come to the Word of God humbly. Give yourself humbly, daily to God. Use the devotional, come to learning communities, and let's learn those essentials so that we can be transformed. And one of the last lines in the song taken from or of the, I think it's the chorus of um, We Believe, is so that, other, so that others can see, so that we can, others can experience God as well. Would you bow your heads? <clears throat> Lord, as we look at the book of Job, we are incapable of grasping how big you are and who you are and all that you do. And it blows us away that you, the God of the universe who could do anything, would love us and care about us as you did with Job in your grace and your mercy confronting him. I pray that you would do that with us. As we go through this year, God, confront us at whatever, however you need to do that so that that we become more humble with you. That you will peel away the pride that we don't even know that's there. And as we do, we will become more, more like you, experience you, and allow your spirit to flow through us as pipelines of your presence. Um, I pray for the teaching team that you would guide us and direct us and And you would explode your presence so that we could be your church that honors you, glorifies you. Um, Do whatever you want, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.